So good to see you. Good morning. Hope all of you are doing well. I want to invite your attention to the book of Genesis. Won't take you very long to get there if you start at the first of your Bible. First book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. I've enjoyed the worship again today. It's always wonderful to be in the house of the Lord here at East Point, isn't it? We're glad many of you are back with us. Some of you have been out of town, some not feeling well, and we're glad you're doing a little bit better and on the mend. Uh, it's good to have Miss Effie back with us. We've been missing her, amen? We miss the rest of you too, or just say it. But uh, we're glad all of you are back. Genesis chapter 22. I, uh, I want to give you a little bit of background on this before I get into this. The title of the message, as you can probably see by your study sheet, is uh, A God First Life. Now, as the year was ending last year, the Lord began to lay certain things on my heart. And this was one of those passages that just kept resurfacing. And I just didn't have liberty to, um, for God to, to give that to me to say, go ahead and preach it until earlier this week. And I felt like, you know, God said, this is what he wants us to look at. So I want you to see it with me. And I want you to think with me. This is a familiar text if you grew up in Sunday school. Now, there are a lot of people today that are in church that didn't grow up in Sunday school. And they didn't grow up in a Bible teaching church. Many of you are uh, products of principle-oriented teaching for many years now, some 15 or 20 years. So there's a good possibility that what I'm about to read to you, you're not familiar with. And I understand that. There may be some listening by way of our internet uh, that uh, uh, hear this and they're saying, you know, I'm just, I haven't been familiar with that. But it is the story of Abraham being told by God to go and present Isaac on the altar as a burnt offering. And it's an interesting story. There's so many truths to it, but what it amounts to really, what it all boils down to is uh, uh, in uh, verse number 12, when God says to Abraham, now that Abraham has been faithful and done everything God said do, verse 12 he says, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now let me say it to you this way. God said, you know something, in this test you've passed the test because the test shows that there is nothing standing between me and you. That you put me first. So the question for us today is, do you put God first? Do you live what would be called a God-first life? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the text. It, it doesn't take very long to get through it. Maybe a couple of minutes, two and a half minutes, something like that. But we're going to read the text to familiarize ourselves with the story. And then we're going to go back and we're going to pick it apart. And we're going to look at five character traits or five traits of a person who truly lives a God-first life. And we're going to ask ourselves, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will help us with this, uh, to, to, is that me? Am I, do I fit that? Am I doing that? And if not, then uh, hopefully he will lay on us some things that we can do to correct that. Amen? So uh, let's take a look at the text beginning in verse number 1, Genesis chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now, and by the way, I've underlined that word now, that, that plays an important role a little later on. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. 
And Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I, and I love this part of the, the scripture. Look at what he says. The lad and I will go yonder. He was from southern Ur of the Chaldees. <laughs> In case you're wondering. He, he said, we will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Isn't that a great verse? Amen. We will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Let me pause just a moment. I'm intrigued by that. He took the fire in his hand. Some people believe that he took um, the instruments in which he could create a fire and make a fire. Others believe that this was probably embers, maybe from a fire the night before, since it was not the easiest thing for them to do as far as making a fire. So he would have carried something that could have easily lit the, the altar or the offering, okay? So, so he carries the fire with him, uh, the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering so the two of them went together. Isn't that a great verse? And many of you, of course, are familiar with that in its prophetic sense. We're going to refer back to that a little later. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns, by its horns, excuse me. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up, up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Did you catch that? Instead of his son. We just sang about the beautiful exchange, how God exchanged himself for us. And indeed, that is the case. So he offered this. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. In the Hebrew, it is Jehovah Jireh. Some of your scriptures may record that. And it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The following verses deal with a blessing because of what he has done. Verse 17, blessing I will bless you and multiply, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That last verse that I just read, while we're not going to deal with it as far as prophecy is concerned, it is a prophetic statement about how from Abraham and from Isaac will come the Messiah. So all the nations of the world will be blessed as a result of what God is about to do for Abraham. Now I could say to you, and it is true, that some of us are missing out on blessings that God has for us because we're not obeying the simple things that God asks us to do. But let me pause a moment and say this. I think this is very important. Um, what God tells Abraham to do today, God would not tell us to do today. This was a picture. It was a picture of the coming of the Messiah. That picture has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And I also want to remind you and those who are listening by way of of, uh, this message online that God prevented Abraham from harming the child, that God would not have us do anything to our children. That is not the voice of God. If someone hears that or thinks that, that's a counterfeit voice and we ought not listen to that. So having said that, let's jump into the first trait. If we live a God-first life, number one, we will be attentive. We will be attentive. God called for Abraham and he called him by name. I love this because God knows your name. Can I get an amen? God knows your name and many times he will call it. Now oftentimes, uh, as was the case when he stopped him, uh, when he had the knife held up, he called him uh, twice, Abraham, Abraham. Now that was equivalent to you and your middle name, okay? Uh, and uh, Abraham happened to be his middle name, I guess. I don't know. But, um, but uh, uh, it arrested his attention. You find that often in the scriptures where Mary, uh, for instance, was called by Jesus, Mary, Mary. And uh, so you find a double calling of the name from time to time. But to be attentive is very important. So God spoke and Abraham said, here I am. I want you to see that. Now the test, the Bible says, came from God. Now it came, verse 1, to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Now tests reveal what is already there. I want you to catch this. This is important. I've given it this, uh, this definition, if you will. A test measures our faith. And that which gets measured gets improved. Some of us don't know. And by the way, when God tests us, it's not so that he will know. Because he knows all things. It's so that we will know. And then, if we know that our faith isn't what it ought to be, we then work on that faith. Am I right? We should work on that faith. And there are times in your life when you've looked at something and you've said, you know, I didn't pass that test, did I? And so now we need to stop and go back and look at it and say, you know, I can trust God. I can do this. Attentiveness is very important. I like the way Abraham responds. Here I am, he said. He didn't just say, yes, Lord, what do you want? Now, I was brought up in a home where my dad taught us as little children, when we were called, we came. We didn't just say, yeah? (laughs) What do you want? So you present yourself. What are you saying? I'm saying that attentiveness means more than simply acknowledging the voice of God. It means presenting yourself as available to God. I'm reminded this week of the story of the man who thought his wife was losing her hearing. And he stood behind her and he said, honey, can you hear me? No response. So he got a little closer. Honey, can you hear me? No response. So he got right up on her. Honey, can you hear me? And she said, for the third time, yes. <laughs> sometimes, we, sometimes we think, some of you get that on the way home. Sometimes, sometimes we think God's not speaking when in reality we're not listening. We're not paying attention to what he has to say. Some of you have heard this before, so let me, uh, let me just remind you. And for others of you, you might want to write these down. There are at least four ways that God speaks to us today. The first and primary way he speaks is through the scripture. When you're reading the word of God. So, if you feel like God is not speaking, I ask you, are you reading? Because he will speak primarily through the scriptures. Number two on the list is his servant. Oftentimes, God will use a preacher or a teacher who has been preparing something and knowing exactly your condition. I actually had a man one time in a church say to me, he said, uh, Pastor, he said, I'm not coming back to the church anymore. And I said, what? And, and he said, I'm not coming back. He said, you were preaching right at me. 
I said, would you mind elaborating a little bit on that? And he told me something that I had said during a message. And I'm, I'm telling you, and the Lord knows my heart. He knows I'm, I had no idea that it was dealing with something he was going through. I had no idea at all. So let me just say this. Sometimes God will speak to you through something he's put in a, in a pastor's heart or in a teacher's heart and it will come out. And, and those times when you least expect it or when you think, man, I don't even want to go to church and you go to church, it's often during those services that something happens and you say, wow, God, thank you. That was it. So he speaks through his scripture. He speaks through his servant. He speaks through his spirit. Do not underestimate the scripture when it says that his spirit bears witness with our spirit. You better learn to pay attention to the spirit leadings. And you need to also pay attention to that uncomfortableness that sometimes you get because God may be trying to tell you something. He may be trying to prevent you from something or lead you to do something. He can speak through his spirit. And then he speaks through situations. The psalmist said it and Jeremiah the prophet said it. They refer to times that God hedges them in. Sometimes God will allow situations to occur in your life that he's trying to get your attention. And if you're sitting here today and you say, I don't know why I can't do that or I don't know why this is happening. Maybe God's trying to tell you something and you need to stop back up and ask God, am I doing it the way you tell me to do it? Now, all of those latter three, whether it be the servant, whether it be the spirit, or whether it be situations will all be consistent with the first one, that is the scripture. So you can check all of those things out to find out whether or not God is in it by whether or not it contradicts the scripture. So I want to encourage you to learn to listen to God. Very important. Secondly on the list, the second attribute or trait, however you wish to say it, is uh, if we live a God-first life, we will be active. Active. I love this text, um, I, and, and for years I looked at this, and I, it's weird sometimes how the Holy Spirit just shows you something that's there all along, and, uh, and, and I've preached this text before, I've been pastoring over 30 years, you know I've preached on Abraham and Isaac before, but, but there was something this week that really arrested me, and I should have seen it long ago and didn't, and so I want to share it with you, and, and it's uh, verse 3 says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Now I have often said and referred to this, how that there seems to be no delay in Abraham doing this, none. And I got to tell you, if this was a, if ever there was a day to sleep in, it was that one. Can I get an uh-huh? Amen? Amen. So why did he do this so readily? And then the Holy Spirit showed me. Look back, I asked you to underline it. Verse number two. Then he said, take now. God said, take now. There's an urgency implied. Take now your son, your only son Isaac. So the very first opportunity he had to travel, he couldn't travel at night, they didn't have headlights on their donkeys, and so they, uh, they could or iPhones with a little flashlight button, it didn't happen that way. So, so the very first opportunity, he rose early in the morning and he went out on the way. Can I say this to you please and listen carefully, that delayed obedience is disobedience. And some of us do not understand that there's an urgency sometimes to do the things of God. And we're not paying attention to that urgency. We keep saying we can do it later. We'll do that later. Can, can I ask you a question? Now, Abraham, well, I'm going to get to the question, okay? But Abraham, uh, Abraham understood what God said. He understood there was an urgency involved. He understood that there was something that God wanted to do. He didn't have to have more understanding about this thing. He doesn't even ask for clarity. This is a very serious, very sobering thought that he has been given. He doesn't 
doesn't say, God, would you mind repeating yourself? He doesn't do that. He listens clearly. He understands. And by the way, if you want to talk with God, the first thing you need to do is walk with God. Abraham walked with God, and so when God talked with him, he understood what he was saying. He did not delay. He rose early in the morning, and he went about what God had called him to do, and he sets out on his journey. Now, here's your question. When are you going to set on your, out on your journey? How long are you going to wait? Some of us have been talking about doing stuff for God so long, we haven't done it. And the question is, why are we delaying? Why do we keep putting it off? When, when are you going to take charge, men, of your home? When are you going to take charge of your life, ladies, of your children, uh, parents, of, uh, of your circumstances and say, we are going to have a God-first life? When is that going to start? Tomorrow, next year, the following year? Haven't we talked about it long enough? Isn't it time to do something about it? Here Abraham is and he said, you know something guys, there's no need in, in delaying this any longer. Let's just do it. So they get up in the morning and they go about it. James chapter 2, James said it this way, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He goes on to say in verse number 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith has made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now that's a very interesting passage of scripture. And let me put it in proper perspective for you. The Bible is not saying that we are saved by works. What it is saying is the kind of faith it takes to be saved is the kind of faith that has some works attached to it. We do not work in order to get saved. We work because we are saved. True faith has action that goes with it. Now that action sometimes needs to be somewhat radical. You need to change directions in your life. There's some of us that need to come before God and say, God, I'm going to turn my family around. I'm going to turn my life around. This is the day we start our journey. This is the time that this all changes now, God, and it's a God-first life that we are going to live. I find it interesting as I was studying this, I thought to myself, you know, he gets up early in the morning. I think Sarah's still sleeping. And I wondered what would have happened had he asked Sarah what she thought about these plans. It probably would have sounded something like, are you crazy? You know, Abraham, you're old, man. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. We don't know how old Isaac is in this text, but we know he's old enough to carry the wood for the altar, which means he's a pretty good sized boy. This was a heavy load. So he gives him this wood and he carries it up a mountain. So he's a good sized boy. He's probably in his mid-teens at least. Old enough to have fought his dad and whooped him. Huh? And yet there's not one thing recorded concerning Abraham or concerning Isaac resisting Abraham, his dad. Not one thing. What's interesting is in the conversation that they carry out, Isaac asks Abraham on the way, my father, he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, now, children learn by asking questions. Right? So Isaac's just learning. Someone has painted the picture of how endearing this comment is, here I am, my son. 
realizing that he's about to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. This is a very dear time, catching a glimpse of his son as they walk along the way and thinking about what all is going to transpire and what is happening and yet following the word of God. May I share something with you, ladies and gentlemen, that I think is important for us to understand? Uh, and and that, is, that is this, that sometimes when God puts something in your heart, you need, to, you need to just do what God has told you to do. Now, I understand this. Let me, let me back up a minute. I want to preface this. The scripture does teach, Proverbs 24, verse 6, For by wise counsel you wage your own war, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. There is a need sometimes for you to go to somebody and ask counsel. I'm not saying that that's not a good thing. But there are other times in the Bible where we learn that the best thing for you to do is be about what God has called you to do and don't necessarily check with everybody else to see what their opinion is. You say, do you have scripture? Do you really think I don't? A couple of them for you. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach among the Gentiles I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus Paul the apostle said when God appeared to me and God did a thing in me I didn't go to all the other apostles and ask them what they thought I went and got alone with God and God did a work in my heart. And those of you that know the history know that he spent three years in the desert of Arabia where God revealed to him that all of that Old Testament stuff, stuff was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And the light came on for Paul. Literally, the light came on. And Paul said, I didn't ask man what he thought. Amen. Listen to this statement I'm about to make. Given enough time and enough opportunities... Mankind, including ourselves, can talk us out of just about anything God calls you to do. If you'll let it happen, they'll talk you out of it. There's always a good reason not to follow God in faith. You've got to have all the answers, you say. I, I love this text. There's so many things in this text. Look at what God tells him. He said, go, uh, into verse 2, uh, to the mountains of which I shall tell you. He doesn't tell him which one. He said, go in that direction. So what does Abraham do? He goes in that direction. So when he gets there, the Bible says he's in the place of which God had told him. And then verse uh, 4 says, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. So here's what happened. Little by little, and that's the way faith is. Little by little, he follows what God is telling him. He does what God has instructed him to do. He carries it that far. He doesn't have all the answers, and you will not have all the answers. And if you're waiting on all the answers to load up the donkey and start the journey, you'll never get started. It's the difference in living with God first and you living with your own understanding first. We're to live a life of faith. And this is what it is. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah does the same thing. Then I rose in the night and had a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. Nehemiah looked around. He said, okay, God, it's me and you, and, and this, is what, uh, this is what needs to be done. And, and, and then later, after he got the plan together, he brings other people in on it. But, but the truth of the matter is, guys, if you keep talking to other people about what it is you think God's laid in your heart, they're going to talk you out of it. 
And somewhere we need to learn when God has spoken and when he's clear, we just need to do what God has told us to do. We don't have all the answers, but he has all the ability. That leads me to the third thing, if you want to write it down. Be adaptable. Adaptable. I, I like this word. I find it interesting because God does not change his mind, but he often does change his methods. And I, I find this uh, sort of interesting because I want you to remember what all Abraham went through. Would you do that? Remember what all Abraham went through. Abraham thought that his servant in his home was going to be his heir. And God said, no, it's not going to be him. So Sarah took it upon herself to help out God. Can I get an amen? amen? And Abraham went along with the story. He went along with the plan. They had a child by Hagar. Remember that story? Ishmael was his name. And uh, uh, so, so Ishmael was born. But that wasn't the seed either. That's not what God's plan was. So God's plan involved Isaac. Isaac comes on the scene. Now this is the only son that he has as far as the seed goes and the Messiah goes. And, and, and so God then says, I want you to offer him a burnt offering to me. Adaptable. Could it be that God wants to do what he wants to do in a different way than you think he's going to do it? Does God have that with you? Are you flexible enough with God that if God told you to do that, that's okay? I'm reminded of a story in the book of Acts where Philip is, uh, is an evangelist and Philip is preaching in Acts chapter 5. Uh, I mean, Acts chapter 8 and verse number 5, uh, the Bible describes this great revival that's going on in Samaria. And then God speaks to Philip and he says, Now, go toward the desert. What? Should I leave this great revival? Are you going to let God do what God wants to do? Or, or are you going to do it all for him? Are you got, you got to plan it out for God? Amen? Go toward the death. And, and so Philip ups from the revival, leads and goes down to the desert. And, but God doesn't tell him exactly what to do. He just said, go toward. You study the text, Acts chapter 8, you'll see it. Go toward the south. Go toward. And once he does that, then he instructs him. You see that chariot? Go join yourself to that chariot. So he goes up to that chariot. And that happens to be the chariot that the Ethiopian eunuch is, is riding on. And he happens to be reading, just happens to be. <laughs> reading the book of Isaiah and Philip says hey do you understand what you're reading how can I he said except someone guide me you see sometimes God speaks through his scripture sometimes God speaks through his servant right how can I understand it except somebody guide me so Philip went up into the chariot and he told him all about Jesus. The Bible says he preached Jesus to him and the man ended up getting saved and the Bible tells us that he uh, went on and was baptized and by the way, we know this from history. We know that Ethiopia at one time did exactly what, pro what the book of Psalms prophesies which is they lifted up their hands toward God and they, they turned to God. There was a great revival in Ethiopia. Most believe that that great revival that took place in Ethiopia all started with this man. Philip goes and he wins one man. He leaves a revival in Samaria. Why would God do that? Who are we to ask God why? He has a plan. And we need to follow the plan. 
Are you adaptable when it comes to the things of God? Are you able to do things when he tells you to do them and change up, if you will? He wants to accomplish his purpose. And that's important that we let him do what he can do. Number uh, four on the list, not only uh, should we be attentive, not only should we be active and adaptable, but we should, number four, be assured be assured. We've talked a little bit about this, but I want to show you a verse of scripture that helps us with this thing of Abraham's faith. Faith is to be sure of God. Now, it's interesting because the Bible doesn't exactly record this verse for us in the Old Testament passage. But when you study this verse found in Hebrews, you see a little bit more of what was going on in Abraham. The Holy Spirit has given us this to look at in the book of Hebrews about the story we have just read. Now we read this. Do you remember reading this? We are going to go yonder. You guys stay here. We're going to go over here and then we are going to come back. You remember reading that? How could he believe that he was going to offer his son, but he was going to come back too. How, how could he do that? What, what, what is that whole, what is that about? Hebrews holds the answer. Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter, beginning in verse 17, if you'll look there, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises afar, uh, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. The Bible says Abraham believed that if he did what God told him to do, then God would raise him up. Now as it turned out, God said, no, don't do that. Don't hurt that child. That's not the plan. But that's what Abraham's faith was. I want you to, to hone in for just a minute on a key little phrase there. That God was able. We used to sing the hymn, uh, God is able, he is able, he is able to deliver thee. Remember that? Remember that old hymn? So I want to ask you a question. Your God, what? What is he able to do? Now don't answer it out loud. Just think about it. What is he able to do? If you answer it in your mind and in your heart with anything less than the word anything, he is able to do anything, then you're limiting God and God is not to be limited. God can do anything. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying that sometimes we don't do whatever it is God may have laid on our heart to do because we don't know that God is able. We don't believe. We're not convinced that God is able. He is able. He can make things work. And it's an interesting thing. I find it interesting as well that John Phillips in his commentary, let me, let me read this to you. In his commentary on Genesis, it's entitled Exploring Genesis. He said, Abraham was ready. There was no prevarication, simply astounding faith. God will provide himself a lamb, he said. He did not know how, when, or where he would do it, but he would. Can we not feel, the commentator asks, listen, can we not feel what Abraham felt? Can we not enter into the anguish that rent his soul? Can we not understand how he shrank from the deed ahead? 
Can we not catch the secret glance he stole at his son, his only son? Can we not feel what God the Father felt in dark Gethsemane? When God offered his only son, there was no other substitute though. There was no ram to be found in the thicket. There was no one else, nothing else that could be offered in his place. He was the one that took our place. Are you assured that God is able? Let me go into number five with you for just a minute because I think a person who lives a God-first life is also going to be, number five, appreciative. Appreciative. We read the word worship in the text. At the, uh, verse number five, look at uh, Genesis uh, 22 and verse five. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship. We will go and worship. Then the Bible tells us that Abraham built an altar. He built an altar. Abraham was an altar builder. Can I take a moment and talk to you about what an altar is and what an altar represents? By the way, he offers a burnt offering. And I don't know how many of you have made this connection or not. In the book of Leviticus, you know, as you're reading your Bible through and you get to all of that interesting stuff called the law. <laughs> it actually is some pretty good stuff if you'll, if you'll pick it apart and look at it. In the book of Leviticus, God gave to Moses five offerings and seven feasts. And it is true, they ate more than they gave, that's true. But uh, uh, seven feasts and five offerings. Among those offerings is the burnt offering. The burnt offering was to be totally consumed upon the altar. But here's what's interesting. Abraham is going to offer a burnt offering. Is the timeline in your head? You, you understand, don't you, that Abraham lived hundreds of years before Moses. They were in, the, in Egypt in bondage. The, the descendants of Abraham... Uh, uh, Jacob's family moved into Egypt and they were there 400 years. So you go from Jacob back to his dad Isaac and then back to Abraham and Abraham was offering a burnt offering. So this offering takes place long before the Levitical law. As a matter of fact, the first burnt offering recorded was even long before Abraham. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 8 when Noah got off of the boat and all the waters had subsided and he took of the clean animals and he offers at the end of chapter 8, burnt offering. A burnt offering. You say, what are you getting at? I'm saying that there is this understanding of the altar long before the law. And there should be an understanding by us long after the law. We use in the New Testament church time, we use the platform area, most of us do. Many of you may have grown up in a church that was designed differently than this. I grew up in a church that had a little designated area with little pillows down there on it, a little uh, handrail that you could put your arms on. That was called the altar. Why do we do this? An altar, hear me, an altar is a place where man meets with God. It's a place where we deal with stuff. It's a place where we offer our praises. It's a place where we deal with sin. 
It's a place where purification takes place. Most of the time, burnt offerings were offered as a means of offering some sense of, God, we need you to cleanse us. But, but there's all kinds of reasons for this offering being given. It fits that, that Isaac was a type of, of Jesus in that he was being offered up and the ram then became a type of Jesus in that through Jesus we have clean, cleanliness, we have the cleansing from our sin. So that, that makes a lot of sense. But in a New Testament time, we do here at our church, and maybe some of you have visited around various churches, and they don't have invitations. One of the reasons that I still do an invitation, and I know it may seem old school, but I don't think it's old school to get alone with God. I don't think you throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there are times we have something we need to do and we need to meet with God. So at an invitation time, we ask people to think about what it is that they've heard and to act on that, whatever it may be. Maybe you come and you kneel at an altar area and you praise God and you thank him and you give him an offering of praise and thanksgiving. Or maybe you come for cleansing. I don't know. Nobody else is judging why you come. Maybe you're praying for the one who's thinking about judging you. I don't know. But, but you, you come to an altar to meet with God and to, to have that that communion and that closeness with him. You say, preacher, can't you do that where you stand, where you sit? You can do that, yeah, but sometimes God lays on your heart a designated place. And so Abraham was an altar builder. I love this text. One of the things that, that bothers me a little about some of our more modern versions is we lose some of the names of God that are in the Hebrew and here, for instance, in our text, we read simply in verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And that is the name of the place. That's at least the interpretation. The name actually used in the Hebrew is Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. It means the Lord will provide. I want you to say that word with me, will you? Jehovah Jireh. Now the definition, the Lord will provide. So Abraham looked at his son. He said this earlier. He said, the Lord will provide. And it's interesting as we read that text, it is a prophetic statement. I think sometimes Abraham, like uh, David the psalmist, and like Daniel at times we read about, I think sometimes the Old Testament prophets and those that God used, I'm not even sure they fully grasped what it was they said, but the Holy Spirit laid it on them to say and then recorded it for us. I don't know the full picture that Abraham understood uh, when he made this statement to, to his son, but what he gives to him is such a great picture of Jesus Christ. Now I say this to you today as we close. Among all the things that you give to your children, among all the things that you want to leave as a legacy, teaching them how to make money is not the answer. Teaching them how to survive socially is not the answer. Teaching them to have stuff and how to accumulate things, that's not the answer. Leave them your faith. Give them your faith. And if your faith isn't what it ought to be, then increase the faith. Let them know that you're struggling in those areas, but you're willing to increase that faith. and Pass on to them the things they need to know about the Lord. That's what Abraham was doing. I love this story because Isaac, and we could spend all day just talking about Isaac. The Bible says Abraham bound him. Can you imagine this, a teenager? Dad? You feeling all right, man? 
What are you doing? He binds him and he lays him on the altar. Did you know Isaac never even talks about this? There's nothing recorded later that Isaac says, you remember that day? Nothing. Nothing. You say, what are you getting at? The Lord will provide. He'll follow. He'll take you. He'll show you. He'll do for you. That's what we ought to be passing on. The first verse of William Cowper's poem, I want to share with you. The saints should never be dismayed nor sink in hopeless fear. For when they least expect his aid, the Savior will appear. Let's pray together. Father, we